Check, check. Okay. All right. There we go. We've got recording. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, two weekends ago, I was actually out of town on vacation, and last week I got stranded out of town because of car issues. So it's a joy, as always, to be together, but for me it's a little more special this morning just because it's been a minute, and it's good to see you guys. As always, it's a joy to get to bring the Word of God, and as we come to our story this morning, my prayer for you as well as my prayer for myself is just that God will use this moment to continue to shape us into who He would have us to be. It's a sad truth in life. But resumes are a necessary evil. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely hate resumes. I hate having to craft one. I hate having to read them. I hate having to think about them. I honestly even hate the word resume. Work is a good thing. Let me be very clear. Work we see in God's creation in Genesis 2, and work will be there in the new creation. Resumes will not. That is, Resumes are a complete thing of the fall. They will be done away with. Our passage this morning is 2 Samuel 11. It's the story of King David's affair with Bathsheba and everything that follows. But prior to this moment in David's life, his resume is stellar. He's a man after God's own heart. He was the only one in Israel who had the faith to stand up to Goliath. Even as Saul was unjustly pursuing him, David would not put his hand against the Lord's anointed. When he becomes king, he he continues to have military victories. And God blesses the kingdom under David. His resume is magnificent. And then we come to 2 Samuel 11. And after this, David's resume is going to read a little different. In fact, the author of 1 Kings puts it this way in chapter 15. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Still an excellent resume, except. I wonder, what is the except on your resume? I'm sure multiple things can come to mind. We all have our character flaws. We all have our past sins. We all have our present struggles. But nonetheless, I imagine that one thing above all else stands out to you when you reflect on who you are and your story and you hear that word, accept. It could be something from the past. It could be something in the present, some sin that has lingered on too long. I know what my accept is. I'm curious what yours is. I'm not asking you to share it. I think we'll all agree that we are very thankful that unlike David's accept, ours is not written down for generation after generation to see. But nonetheless, we still have to deal with our accepts. The title for my sermon this morning is It Happened to the Best of Us. Because make no mistake about it, David clearly was the best of us. There was nobody in God's people in the history of Israel 
that really came close to David. None of us, no matter how good your resume is, can really hold a candle to David. And the story is the story of the fall of the best of us. You'll notice as we go through our story, it's a different plot than we usually see in Scripture. You know, often the the stories of of God's people are are how God provides for them. And and the story is, is not going to be that. It's not going to be a story of a whodunit like we see on TV. Rather, this story is simply focusing on this. Will David get away with it? And as we go through our story this morning of David trying to get away with it, we'll find this one truth that holds true for David and holds true for each of us today. No one can cover up their sin before God. No matter who you are, whether this is your thousandth time in church on a Sunday morning or your first time, no matter how big or how small, how rich or how poor, how powerful or how oppressed, how young or how old, how religious or how secular, how orthodox you are in your beliefs or how this is perhaps you're far from the the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, no one can cover up their sin before God. We see our story is going to move in four parts. There's the initial crime, an attempt to sweep it under the carpet. We get this callous conspiracy, and then finally the aftermath. Instead of reading the story all up front, I'll read it along as we go, since it's a long story. You can follow along with me. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to look at the initial crime, verses 1 through 5. Follow along. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her home. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. The story opens with the author telling us that it's the time when kings go to battle. Now, this time, unlike times in the past, David decides he's not going to go off to battle. He's actually going to stay at home. He sends Joab, his his general, instead. Now, one would think that staying at home rather than going into the field of battle would actually be a safe place. But what we end up finding out is somehow this is the most dangerous place David has ever been in his life. Because David's not in the right place. In verse 3, he, he wakes up from a nap one day, and he strolls to the roof of his palace, and he looks over his kingdom, and he's taking in the view. Again, nothing inherently wrong here. And his eyes happen to catch a, a woman bathing. Again, if it stopped at that, if he saw and turned and didn't pursue it, nothing necessarily wrong. 
But he sends. He inquires about this woman. And when it comes back to him, it's told to him that it's a woman, or Uriah the Hittite's wife. The servant who brought this word back to David, make no mistake about it. He, he frames it in a question like, hey, isn't this, isn't this you know, Bathsheba? Isn't that Uriah's wife? He frames it like that. But he is giving David a warning. He is trying to make sure that David doesn't do something stupid. He is trying to tell David that she is off limits because he can see David's mind is starting to race and he's starting to become intoxicated with lust. But David just blows off this warning. See, David's not only not in the right place, he's not listening to the right people. I don't know about you, but that's always a recipe for disaster in my life being in the wrong place and ignoring the wisdom of others. So David plows right through this warning and he sends for Bathsheba and sleeps with her. I mean, he's the king, so he just takes what he wants. He, he, he's the king, so if he wants this, this urge to be satisfied, he just goes for it. Now, I do want to say this, because sometimes people are curious about the, the role of Bathsheba in this whole episode. I mean, did she do something wrong? Is she also culpable? Now, let me say this. Whether or not she had the ability to refuse the king's demand and request, we don't really know. But it is clear that David is absolutely abusing his power here. More so, anytime scripture mentions this incident, they never pin it on Bathsheba. This is always David's sin. David is the one at fault here, ultimately. This story is about David. And as we see David doing these things, blowing past these warning signs, sleeping with somebody else's wife, we kind of have to like step back and ask ourselves, wait, 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 wait. I thought this was David. I thought this was the man that was the man who God called a man after my own heart. Didn't David say to God, like, I want to build a house for you, the temple? And here he is sleeping with another man's wife. What happened? How did he get there? What I want us to see, what I want us to make sure that we understand how David got there and what is actually going on inside of David, is he is living with a mindset of complete and utter autonomy from God. Perhaps it was his achievements over all the years that grew into some sense of arrogance, which led to this sense of autonomy. I don't need God. I seem to be doing pretty well myself. David is no longer serving as a king for the people. David is ruling as a king for his own pleasure and gratification. Somewhere along the way, in the midst of all the fame, all the women, all the victories, all the luxuries... David began to think it was all about him, that there was no authority over him, that he said what was good and right, that his life and his kingdom were solely about him. It's complete self-indulgence. Go for it. Enjoy. Have at it. You're the king. You make the rules. Nobody is boss over you. You decide what is right and wrong. But of course, this mindset of self-autonomy 
It's not unique to David. In fact, this desire, we see this coming all the way from Genesis 3. This desire to push off God's rule in favor of our own. In some sense, this story is as old as time. The temptation in the garden, the temptation to David, and the temptation to us. Have it your way. Make your own rules. Put yourself in a position of sole authority. It's a story as old as time. Men and women rebelling against God's rule in favor of our own. You ever find yourself asking, what on earth am I doing? I mean, you you love Jesus, but you just find yourself living outside of his values and kingdom. Just rejecting God's rule in favor of your own. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all find ourselves sitting in David's position more often than we would care to admit. And here we have David sitting on the throne, giving orders, Life goes as he says it goes. I mean, if you notice as we read through the passage, as we continue to read through the passage, how much sending David does, right? The author is just like, David sends him here, and he sends for this one, he sends for that one. He, he's, he's painting this picture of us, for us, of, of David just sitting on the throne and just giving orders one way, one way, one way, just moving these pawns on the chessboard because once again, life is all about him and everybody there is to gratify his own needs. It's complete autonomy. That's where David's heart is at. And everything else, everything else that happens in this story is a symptom of David's heart. So much of the, uh, the pain that we cause others and we bring upon ourselves and our sin, it's ultimately a symptom of a heart that is rejecting God's rule, God's loving rule in our lives. And I'm sure for David, as I know for some of us, that living autonomously certainly has its perks for a while. But then we come to verse 5, weeks after David has slept with Bathsheba, Bathsheba sends word back to David, I'm pregnant. He thought he had gotten away with it, And now this word comes back, and David realizes, all right, it's pretty easy to cover up an affair when the husband's away, and there's no baby. But if there is a baby, that becomes a problem. So after this initial crime, David's way out of this problem, he's going to just try and sweep what he did under the carpet. If you would, look at verses 6 through 13 with me. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. 
Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with the Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. David doesn't want this story to get out about him and Bathsheba and this baby. So David's got to create a new story, a different narrative for this baby. So in verse 6, he sends word to Joab and he orders him to send Uriah back. David's plan is pretty simple. Uriah's been at war. When he comes back, he's going to want to have some R&R with his wife. Baby comes, great. Uriah was home. There's no questions. Of course, upon his return, Uriah doesn't do this. He, he rather decides he's going to find a bed among David's other men. When, when David finds out about this, Uriah, uh, his response is, is like, dude, like, I'm not going to go and enjoy the comforts of home when my fellow soldiers are camping, when they're in the midst of a war. How, how would I go and do that? What's interesting is Uriah here, shows so much honor and integrity and self-control. Something which David, in our story, has completely lacked. You would hope that seeing such godly character from David would actually awaken him, that it would, it would shake him out of, of this, this mindset that he's been having, that everything is for him. But instead, he just doubles down on covering up his sin. He gets this other great idea. You know what's a great way to override somebody's self-control? I'm going to get him drunk. Of course, the next morning, David comes to find out that drunk Uriah has more self-control than sober David. I mean, every, every right, uh, or every, uh, Uriah has every right to go home and to be with his wife. And he doesn't. David, even though he is king, has no right to be with another man's wife and he does. As king, David has total control. What he says goes. Send, 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 send. As a man, he has lost all control of himself. And the more he just tries to sweep his sin under the carpet, the more of a royal mess he makes. Trying to create a narrative for his sin, he just makes more and more pain all around. How do you try and control the narrative of your sin? I mean, right, we all have stories we tell ourselves and others to kind of justify our sin. I was thinking about this one, like, you know, we justify our sin by kind of trying to explain the circumstances, right? Like, well, you know, I, I would never say that, but so-and-so said this, so yeah, they kind of got the best of me. We might say to ourselves to justify our sin that, that we need it to get through the day. That's how, that's how I've learned to cope. We might look at some of our sin and, and we twist the narrative by just being like, look, I mean, it's been in my life, hasn't really done any damage, and things seem to be going fine. Perhaps the story we tell ourselves to sweep that sin under the carpet is we minimize it. It's not really that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. I'm sure we've all said this one. I know I have. 
It was only one time, or that was the last time. We all create these narratives to ourselves and to others to try and sweep our sin under the carpet. Again, the truth from this text is no one can cover up their sin before God. Now, I'm sure for many of us, we actually don't need to be convinced of this theologically. Like, as we just affirmed in the creeds and throughout our songs, we have our sin and we need it to be covered up. Again, I don't think we need to be convinced about this theologically. But nonetheless, how often do we find ourselves trying to cover up our sin, to create a different story? So you tell me what you and I actually believe about covering up our sin before God. Because after all, it happened to the best of us, so we can assume it will happen to us. After this failed attempt to sweep it under the carpet, David has one last idea how to get away with it. We see this callous conspiracy in verses 14 through 25. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab and some of the people among David's servants fell and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go near, so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbathsheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Rather than come clean with everything that's happening, once again, David decides that he's going to have to kill Uriah to cover it up. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield and adding insult to injury, he banks on Uriah's integrity, and he actually gives him the note, knowing that Uriah is, again, a man of integrity. He's not going to look at the note that's for Joab. So Joab reads this letter. He, he's complicit with it, make no mistake, Joab does not come off well in this. However, he's not going to try and pull off this plan exactly as David said. David is like, hey, just let Uriah go out front and then pull everybody back. And Joab's like, okay, I can't do that. Like, I can't tell everybody this order and expect nobody to be loyal to Uriah and actually tell Uriah what's going on. I'm going to have to send a bunch of men and put a bunch of men's life at risk. 
if you want me to get Uriah killed. Now, what Joab does is pretty dumb. You don't have to be an ancient scholar in, in, in warfare to know, like, just charging the enemy's wall is a bad idea. Joab sends this messenger back to David, and, and he knows that David's going to be a little upset because there was a lot of losses. It wasn't just Uriah who died. And so he tells the messenger, like, look, when you're telling him about all the losses, then just throw in this, this last comment of Uriah, your servant, is dead, and, and that will cool down David's anger. Now, the messenger is no idiot, right? There's a reason we have the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. And so the messenger is like, all right, if you tell me what I'm about to tell the king is going to make him upset, and here's the thing to tell him to cool him down, I'm leading with the thing that's going to cool him down. Then look again at David's response to the messenger in verse 25. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as the other. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it. And so encourage him. Cold-blooded. David's response to a group of his men dying is there is no need to lose sleep over it. He's essentially saying to Joab, look, these things happen, people die in war, you know, what can you do? It's not just Uriah that was killed. A bunch of men die to cover up David's sin, and he brushes it off as absolutely nothing. The the compassion which David has shown throughout his kingdom, throughout the, the story of him arising to become king, It's completely gone. There's not a hint of compassion in this man. David is trying to manage his own world, and in so doing, he is just completely callous to the lives and well-being of others. Even the word he uses here, displeases, right? Another way we could translate that is evil. Joab, don't think of this thing that happened as evil. Because guess what? David doesn't think it's evil. Again, He's utterly autonomous. He's making the rules. That's not a bad thing because it helped me get off. This is where we see the effects of living autonomous from God instead of reflecting the compassion that we should as the people of God. That compassion is slowly corroded and we become callous as David did to the welfare of others. David's unmoved by this devastation that he's caused uh, to these men's lives and to the families that they undoubtedly had. Because again, they are just pawns on the board of his life, on his kingdom. All David cares about is his problem is solved. His sin is covered up. David was the best of us. And look at how deeply sin got the best of him. Look at what sin did. How it destroyed everything and everyone around him. Sometimes I think as believers, we can take sin too lightly and its actual effects and consequences that it has in the here and now. Yes, Jesus paid it all. I'm not saying he didn't. But make no mistake about it, the way we live our lives, the choices we make, when we put our hearts in a disposition of rejecting God's rule for our own autonomy, we only cause destruction to ourselves and those around us. 
In fact, it is something that we need to constantly be mindful of. Because again, we can too often brush off the reality of sin and the damage it does in our lives. And as we conclude our story, we see the aftermath. It's not pretty. The aftermath is in verse 26 and 27. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, then she bore him a son. It's not a whodunit. It's will he get away with it. And on one hand, David does get away with it. Uriah is gone. Bathsheba marries him. There's no more scandal. No more questions to be answered. David's plan worked. And then just as you think that this scene is closing, just as you think the movie's about to end with the villain getting away with it, the narrator throws this last sentence in. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's the author playing his hand of what's to come, the aftermath. It's, it's God saying to him, David, you might think you've gotten away with it. You might think that you're big stuff. You might think that you have this immense power. You might think that you have everybody fooled, that nobody actually knows what you have done and what is going on in your heart. You might say all you want that this thing, don't let it displease you, it's not a bad thing. But you don't make the rules here. I do. And no one, not even you, can cover up their sin before me. Of course, there's a lot that we can glean from this story. In our remaining time, I would like to leave you with these three reflections and applications from David's sin. This passage is undoubtedly a warning. If it happened to the best of us, it could certainly happen to you and me. And while we obviously should avoid sexual impurity, manipulating, murder, hatred of brothers, being compassionateless, these are all symptoms that start in the heart. It is a heart attitude that somewhere moved for David from faithfulness, devotion to God, to self-indulgence and utter autonomy. Let us not pretend that our hearts, this side of eternity, cannot be drawn to indulgence and autonomy as well. And self-rule always makes a mess of things. That is the warning. David's sin here is catastrophic. It is going to have such immense problems come out of it for both his personal life and for the kingdom, for the people of God. So my charge to you is know your heart. Know your heart. And when it is inclined towards self-rule, when it is inclined to push off God's loving rule in favor of your own, And let a fellow brother or sister in Christ in. Let them know your heart as well. Because David here is operating again as a man in the wrong place and not listening to the right people. 
So know your heart. Let somebody else know your heart so they can speak into it. Second thing that we take from this story. Don't overlook the fact that this story is actually recorded for us in Scripture. I don't know how your guys' families act. Uh, My family tends to not mention these types of stories in our family history, right? The the stories of, of people really screwing up in the family, those are not the stories we sit around and share. But God thinks that this is an important family story for us to know. And I think he thinks it's an important family story for us to know, one, because it's a warning, and two, because it's an encouragement. We all have the accept in our stories. David had a huge accept in his story. That does not mean that there is no hope for you. Be encouraged that if David could screw up this bad and still find God's mercy, grace, love, so can you and I. I'd encourage you, once again, to share your story, to share your accept with people in this room, with brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying share it with everybody. But the accepts in our resumes that we hold on to, just as sin always does, it breathes best in the dark. And when we bring it to light, we actually can find healing. As we bring our stories to light, those things that perhaps still bind us, those those narratives that we tell ourselves about guilt and shame, we actually can find release and relief. Sin has a powerful effect when we hide it and cover it up. Bring it to the light. If sin is currently getting the best of you, if if it is ripping the seams of your life apart, whether that be internally or externally, my plea with you, is let somebody know. Do not cover it up before God. Do not cover it up before a brother or sister in Christ. Lastly, David's story isn't done. Neither is yours. Neither is mine. We can find great confidence that sinners who don't cover up their sin become justified. On the other side of this whole event, David is going to pen Psalm 32. I encourage you to go and read it at some point this week. Paul actually quotes from Psalm 32 in Romans 4 as he is trying to communicate that our justification, that we are made right before God, that we are declared innocent before God, is by faith and not by works. And this is what Romans 4 says. Again, he will be quoting from Psalm 32. Now to the one who works, his wage is is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness in part from works, here are David's words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, and whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We have a king who truly was the best of us. The ideal king without any exception. Jesus had no sin to cover up of his own. 
And yet, he decides to take on ours to completely cover our sin. I don't know if the accept on your resume is something in the past that you still feel guilt and shame over, but if it is, hear the words of the king who loved you and died for you, that he's got you covered. Perhaps your exception is an ongoing thing, a a present reality, a, a pattern of sin that you're still trying to figure out how to move the pieces on that chessboard. Well, no one can cover up their sin before God. When we come out with it, when we decide to no longer hide it, when we confess it, we can be confident that God truly does cover it. You can be confident because you can look at the cross and know that you will find grace there. Be confident in God's covering of you. To paraphrase Paul in 1 Timothy 1, this covering of sin, it happens, even for the worst of us. Let's pray. Father, as we think of our stories, as we think of the things in our past and the things in our present where we have rejected your loving rule in favor of our own, I pray that your spirit moves in a way in which it convicts us to bring forth and to confess those things that are wrong in your sight. Lord, I pray that as we deal with our sin that we will not fall into the lies of the enemy and feel condemned, feel that you are not loving to us, to feel that perhaps we are beyond your redemption. Lord, give us the confidence in the truth of what you have done on a cross that all those who believe in your name are justified by your Son's blood. In Jesus' name, amen.